Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Well, we are nearly towards the end of our uh, You Asked For It series where, you know, one of the things that I knew that was going to happen Without a shadow of doubt, this is 100%. I knew that when we asked for questions a couple of months ago, I knew that at some point there was going to be lots of questions all about gay marriage. And so that's going to be next week. Um, <laughs> and Beck's going to be speaking. No, she's not. <laughs> I'm not palming that one off. Uh, but we're really excited about next week um, because we know it's a big topic and we are glad that you're the ones that want to know about it so that we're not shoving our theology down your throat. We are doing it because we want you to be equipped and to be able to speak into people's lives. But this week is not too different because I think it links in in the idea and, and in what is going on. I'm going to just read to you a couple of the questions that people did ask. And the first one is this. In the Old Testament, it says not to eat shellfish um, so why do we follow some laws but not others and in brackets such as a, such as a man lying with a man another person asks, why don't we follow the Old Testament laws regarding food or clothes um, as found in Leviticus 18:22, but strongly enforce the laws regarding sexuality obviously there is a little bit of a disconnect uh, with many of us where we kind of feel like Christianity is a little bit outdated and we feel like these standards that we impose on people is unfounded. It, it is difficult. Why do we choose some things and not others? Why is it that we uh, tell you that you cannot do this, but then at other times, like, oh, yeah, 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 that's just Old Testament stuff. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And as you can see, many people are confused about why is it that the church uh, has this stance about um, homosexuality and other sexual um, immorality and all of that kind of stuff uh, in that category. And that's what we're going to be diving into today. And we're going to talk about law and why we as Christians, we still have to understand it. The thing is that for us as Christians in the, uh, in the church today, the key thing that we need to understand is that we are under grace and not under the law. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah. yeah, most people do. If you're here for the first time, I'm sorry that we have thrown such words at you. But we don't serve a law. We are under the grace of God. And that's something that we are going to be unpacking. But first, let's have a better understanding of what the law is. The law uh, that we are referring to is not the Australian law. We're not referring to uh, a legal law as, you know, not really, but we are referring to, sorry, I lost the word, but we're referring to the Jewish law, the law that's found particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament. That is referred to as a law. That's referred to by Jewish people as the Torah. And in uh, the Torah, there are 613 specific commandments. 613. Now, you can put your heart at ease because we, if you become a part of Lift Church and, and you go on those bottles, there's no way on that bottle that says, please collect your 613 commandments that you need to obey. And I'm pretty sure Life Chapel is not going to do anything like that at all. In fact, um, we don't really even remember many of those 613 commandments at all. So what is it about those um, 
those 613 commandments, what are we supposed to obey and what are we not supposed to obey? And, and the thing that helps us uh, to understand the purpose behind this law, I feel, is that 247 of them uh, are specific to the temple in Jerusalem. That is a whopping 40% of the laws found in the Torah are related to how people are supposed to approach the temple and how they are supposed to cleanse themselves before going to the temple and how they're supposed to perform uh, uh, sacrifices at the temple and how to clean the temple. All these things, were, uh, 247 of them were there. And uh, the interesting thing to me is that Jesus, when he was walking on earth, he at one point prophesied and said, one day that temple is going to be completely destroyed. In fact, not one stone is going to be on another stone. And in AD 70, that exact event happened. The, the, the Roman soldiers came in and they completely destroyed the temple. And what they found was that there was gold inlaid in between the stones so that they even pushed up every single stone so that they could get to the gold. Beck and I were there two years ago and literally there's still some of the ruins there. And you can see that even the walls around it, uh, they've been completely pulled down. And, and I think it's really interesting that God himself had no problem with this temple being destroyed knowing that that was going to affect close to half of the laws that he himself wrote down. And it kind of tells me that there are some things that are not really necessary. There are some things that God doesn't really care about as much today that we have to, he wants us to know, go through the ceremonial washing and, 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 you know, kill animals. I'm glad that we don't do that, you know. So you can put your cat down. You can continue to keep it. Cats are actually very much part of um, the Christian walk. I don't know why. I just believe that I like cats. But there was a little side note. I was wanting to see whether you were paying attention. Uh, but 40% of the laws are no longer in operation today because we can't actually obey them. That's pretty crazy. So are we supposed to obey any of them? And I think many of us actually think that because we are under grace and not under the law, we don't have to obey any of them. But maybe we need to look into Jesus' words himself. And he says this in Matthew 5, 17 to 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Isn't that interesting that Jesus himself said that the law is not actually abolished, but is actually fulfilled in him. And I think he was referring quite specifically to that 40% that we were talking about, referring to the temple and all the systems around the temple, and maybe many more of those laws as well, when he said that he has actually come to fulfill them. So how is it that Jesus has actually fulfilled the law, and he hasn't abolished it, he hasn't gotten rid of it, but he has fulfilled it. How Jesus fulfilled it is this. The law is a standard of living that God gave to people. It was a standard of living that people needed to live by in order to attain right standing with God. We shorten right standing with God into this word called righteousness. Without righteousness, we cannot be in relationship with God. He is a right God and we are not a right people. 
There are many things that we can't actually do. And in fact, when God put in all of those laws, he specifically put in things to help us to see that he wasn't just looking for us to do things right because he knew that we were going to get things wrong. And that's why God put in the, uh, the, the, the sacrificial system with all the cows and all the sheep and all the doves and all the pigeons and all of those things that used to be killed back in the day as a uh, substitution for us. Because the Bible clearly shows us uh, that, that the wages of sin, the wages of breaking God's law is death. And so these uh, laws allowed us to continue on living in relationship with God through animal sacrifice. But animal sacrifice was only a temporary fix. It only allowed them to continue living for a year, and then they would have to come back to the temple again, and then they would have to go through all these sacrifices and all the different rituals that were associated with the temple. But when Jesus came, Jesus was the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice that dealt with all sin once and for all, so that any person that puts their trust in Jesus no longer has to live according to the standards of the Bible in order to be righteous, but they just have to look to Jesus in order to receive righteousness. We spoke about this a few weeks ago when we spoke about salvation. We said that salvation is not something that you earn, and therefore it is not something that you lose. You cannot earn something that is a gift, and you cannot push away something that is a gift. It is something that God has given to you, and all you have to do to receive it is to receive it. You just have to be there and say, thank you, and then it is yours. And that is why Jesus has fulfilled the law, because we don't have to live according to the law, because the penalty has already been paid. Is that making sense so far? Paul himself, one of the great apostles, put it this way in Romans 5, 19 to 21. For as by one man's disobedience, and that is Adam, right at the start in Genesis 3, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, and that's Jesus. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I think we should take a moment here. Because if you think that you're ever going to earn your salvation, you are so wrong. The Bible tells us that if you commit one sin, one thing against the law, you are guilty of all sin. The death penalty is the death penalty is the death penalty. It doesn't change because you've done two sins or you've done half a sin. It is a sin, it is a sin. It attracts the penalty of death. But where there was death, Jesus came in as our substitute, died for our sin, so that we don't have to do that anymore. Is anyone here happy about that? Because I don't think I'm really hearing the joy that should be in every Christian when we say where sin increased, and I know that my sin has increased over the course of my life, grace abounds all the more. If you try to come into this church and you try to tell me that you've never committed any sin, I will tell you that you are in denial. I will tell you that you are not going to be able to receive a gift of salvation because you see it as something that you've earned. What happens the moment you've done something wrong? That gift is now no longer, you can't earn it. So I hope that you sense what I'm trying to say here. But at the same time, it gets a little bit tricky, doesn't it? 
In fact, I think most Christians would agree with most of the stuff I'm saying. Uh, the thing that we have a problem with is the whole idea, with, with the whole thing of where sin increased, grace increased all the more, abounded all the more. Yep. I like that idea, but I struggle with that idea. Anyone else feel the same way? It's like if grace abounds more, when I sin, shouldn't I sin more so I can experience more of God's grace? <laughs> Why is the church so like beating people up about sin? Why do we even have any standards? Go sin more. You get more grace. I hope no one just cuts that podcast right there. <laughs> says, don't go to Lift Church because those guys preach this stuff. I'm giving it as an analogy. You all thought about it before. Stop condemning me, you guys. Self-righteous. But I struggle with that. I don't understand it. Why do we even have any standards whatsoever if me disobeying a standard means more of God's grace? How many here wants more of God's grace? Not a trick question. Seriously, I want more of God's grace in my life. I want to know that I'm living right in the center of God's grace. I want to know that God has got so much grace for my life that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All of us want that. So does that mean that the way to more grace is more sin? So how do we wrap our minds around this? And it's a good thing that Paul continues and he talks about this. Uh, right after he finishes that, we go into the next chapter and he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Our exact question. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Pretty cool, yeah? Except that I usually get lost. Because I didn't understand this whole idea of what it means to be dead to sin. Because my idea about sin, and I'm going to get a little bit of help here. Let's say this represents a life of sin. It's a cookie jar. And this monkey represents us because we are all just evolved monkeys. We are not. This podcast has just gone to pieces. But this is a life of sin. Look, I got it ready. And this life of sin looks pretty amazing. It's a cookie jar. For those who are in podcast land are totally lost right now. I'm holding up a cookie jar that this morning represents a life of sin. Cookie jars look amazing, don't they? When you see a cookie jar that's full of cookies, you want to go to it, don't you? You want to reach in and you want to have one. And when you have one cookie, what happens next? You want another cookie. When you have two cookies, what do you want next? You want more cookies. And so this is a life of sin that we have. And it's much like a cookie jar. It tempts us, and we know that it's wrong. But we love it. It brings some kind of satisfaction into us, even though the fat on our, uh, on our thighs are just expanding crazily. And, and we immerse ourselves into a life of sin. And what we find after a while is that the life of sin has so captured us that we have no way out. And we, and we don't know what to do. And there's no more cookies in the jar. And so here we are sitting in this old cookie jar with no cookies and no way out. And I think that kind of symbolizes the life of sin. It promises so much. 
but delivers so little. The more we consume of it, the more we find that there's nothing in it. The more we, we, we dive into it, the more we find this emptiness. And many of us, uh, in the course of our life, we realize, and that's why you're here today, maybe because you, you, you realize that the life of sin doesn't bring the fulfillment that you once thought it would. You're actually trapped, and there is this anxiety and, and not being able to get out. You have this worry and this depression. Oh, look at that other person's uh, life of sin. They've got more cookies. Maybe I'll dive into that. And so we partake of another cookie jar, but we find it's the same thing. There's nothing in it, and now we're trapped. And my picture when it comes to salvation is, is that God's grace has come in. And the, the, thing, the thing that I used to think about what grace does to this life of sin is that it, it completely destroys this and gets it out of the picture. We are now dead to sin. Yeah? Make sense? We somehow have thought that grace taking us and, and causing us to be dead to sin means that we have no capacity to sin. We think that sin is completely out of the picture. And the problem with that thought is this. I don't know about you, but I know about me. I still have that capacity to sin. And I used to have this trouble because since I have a capacity to sin and sin is still in the picture... Does that mean I don't have salvation? Isn't that a common thought? So if I haven't received salvation, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I haven't got it right. Maybe I'm not obeying all the laws I'm supposed to, living up to the standard that I'm supposed to. But then I recognize that that's not grace. So we're left with this stupid picture with a monkey and a cookie jar, and no idea what to do about it. But God showed me something that I never saw before that hopefully will help you. You see, the action of grace is not to get rid of the cookie jar. The action of grace is to remove us from sin. You see, the word being dead to sin, the word dead has a very specific meaning in the Bible. You see, Paul himself, who wrote these words that we are dead to sin, said that the wages of sin is death. Now, if the wages of sin meant physical death, no one would be here. Agree? Yeah. Yeah. No, no one. There's no point doing church. We'd all be dead. Probably at one year old or maybe even half a year old, six months old. You do your first stupid thing. You know, you poop somewhere you shouldn't poop. You're gone. You're dead. Just like that. You disobeyed your parents. You're gone. In fact, I don't even know why there will be kids because there shouldn't be any parents. But anyway, moving on from that, you know, the word death, the wages of sin is death. That word death means separation. It means separation from life. It means separation from God. When we sin, it's not so much that we die in the physical, but it's that we have created this wedge, this undeniable wedge, this severe wedge between us and God, and that is the consequences of sin. And so when Paul says that we are dead to sin, it shows me that the picture of what's going on is that grace has come. Jesus has come. 
come to a place that is disgusting, a place that he should never have been. And his grace, his love for us is so great that he's removed us from the life of sin. He hasn't removed our ability to sin. Sin is still in the picture. We're just not in it anymore. Okay? That is really important that we understand that this, 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 this is still there. This is still in all of our lives. Our sin, our temptations, our thought life, our desires are still there. The thing about God's salvation is that it doesn't take away your will. It doesn't take away your ability to choose. It still leaves this ability right there. And, and I love that, 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 that Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, he puts these very words, If we have died with him, we also will live with him, him being Jesus. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what this tells me is this, that for every Every Christian, what we're doing is that we're dealing with that third line. We're saying, I'm not going to deny Jesus anymore. I need a Savior. I'm not good enough. I can never live up to the standards of the Bible. So I'm not going to deny Him anymore. I'm going to say, you are my Lord and my Savior. And so if we don't deny Him, He won't deny us. He'll come close to us. But the next line is dealing with this exact problem. Because if, if it says, if we are faithless, it means that we have the ability to choose. We can be faithless. We have this ability to be faithless. Don't look at me and condemn me. Look at yourself. I can be faithless. I have been faithless. I continue to be faithless. And what the picture of faithlessness looks like is maybe not immersing your whole self into the cookie jar, but maybe it's just your tail. I don't know how to do this. Or maybe a leg. That's, that's faithlessness. God's actually removed us from the life of sin, caused us to be dead to sin. But many of us, myself included, continue to choose every now and then to dabble with the life of sin. But the amazing promise in this word is that it doesn't say if we are faithless, he will be faithless to us too. In fact, the very word of God says, if we are faithless, come on, let's read this together. He remains faithful. Come on, this morning is not here to tell you standards to live by. I'm not here to tell you that you stuffed up. I'm not here to tell you that you are not meeting the standard because I can't do that in good conscience because I'm not meeting the standard. I've been faithless. But the thing that I found in my life is that even though I still stay so close to the life of sin that I used to have, God's grace is still there for me. His faithfulness is still there for me. And he's drawing me away when I'm saying, God, I need help. I don't know why I'm still in that kind of pattern of life. I don't know why I'm still having those thoughts. I don't know why I'm still having those desires. His grace is still close to me I never earned it I never deserve it but he's still there for me and he's still there for you so with all of that in mind why does the church still have standards why does the church still talk about certain boundaries for our life the reason for that is because many of us don't know anything but the life of sin it's very familiar to us and so when we see it, we feel comfortable with it. It's like that old stinky pillow. All of you've got one. 
So much judgment this morning. You've got that pillow that your spouse or your mom or dad hates. But when you smell it, it brings you home. You know it's got so much dead skin in it. And I don't know what else you've done to it. No one should ever see it and you should be burning it. But you're comfortable with it. And so for many of us, even though outside of the cookie jar is so much bigger, we still end up looking at it all the time. It's so comfortable to us. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.23, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The reason why there are boundaries and standards that we still keep today as a church is because the life of sin still exists in our lives. There's still places that we shouldn't go. Grace doesn't get rid of your ability to have adultery. Grace doesn't get rid of your ability to get angry and to hurt someone. Grace doesn't get rid of your ability to envy, to lust, to covet. But grace takes us out of that place and then we get to see what is helpful and what builds us up. See, and I want to be careful here, God doesn't get scared of your sin. He's dealt with it. You know, I used to think that Jesus' death only deals with the sin all the way up to my point of conversion. And then every other time that I sinned from there, and I used, there was this song, I, I remember it, and, and we used to be taught it, and it, it goes, do you still feel the nails every time you fall? And I used to go, oh man. It used to break my heart, and I'll come back to God, but I realize how theologically wrong that song is. Because Jesus doesn't die every time you sin. Jesus' death is way more powerful than your sin. Jesus' death has dealt with your sin that you committed before your point of conversion, but it also deals with the sin that you're going to commit today. Come on, let's be honest. There's still stuff that we're dealing with, and it's going to deal with your sin that you're going to commit tomorrow, and the sin that you're going to commit the day after, and the sin you're going to commit five years down the road. It's going to deal with all your sin for the rest of your lives. Jesus' death is not confined to a moment in time. Jesus' death is not so small that it's like the Old Testament sacrifices that has been put through again and again and again. Jesus' death was once and for all. You don't have to worry about condemnation when you're in Christ Jesus, even if you are still getting close to that life of sin because God's faithfulness and grace has dealt with it. It pushes you away from it but Christian listen to me there is still benefit and not going back to the life of sin there is still a time when when we choose to be away from God that we will still suffer the consequences of this sin because grace hasn't got rid of sin or capacity to sin it just takes us away from it but when we choose sin we're choosing not to have grace in our lives 
When we choose sin, we're choosing to stay small and confined by our life of sin. But when we choose Christ, we are turning away from the limitations of our life of sin. And we're saying, God, I want to live in the expanses, in the grace that you have got for me. Christians, can I talk to you for a moment? You are doing the church a disservice when you go around telling people to do things because it is a law. It is not a law. It is a boundary that keeps us away from the old way of living that grace has removed us from. It is to talk about the benefits. There's so many people that talk about the destruction of adultery. But how many people are talking and shouting out from the mountaintops that the, 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 the grace, the amazing ability, uh, not ability, but uh, uh, the life that is available in a, in a faithful, committed relationship. You know, we go around and we say, stop fooling around, stop sleeping around, stop doing this. How many of us are actually saying, man, a committed relationship, that is the bomb. And you're not saying it with a winds in your face, like you're just lying. You're saying it like it's real. You say, come on, you need this. This is how Christ has created you. Some Christians are sourpusses and their face is all like, you're chewing lemons and you're saying, come and live like me. You're bound by the law. But you've been released by grace. Come on, there needs to be a joy. The Bible tells me so many times that there's a joy of salvation. How many of us have access to joy of salvation? How many of us are living out the joy of salvation? And this is what salvation looks like. Sin's still there. My ability to sin is still there. I can still choose sin, but I'm not going to look at that anymore. I'm going to turn around. There are many things that we need to learn. And for people who are struggling with this, how do I know the things that I need to be turning away from? The easy, easy answer, I don't have time to go into a heap of it, but just look through the New Testament. If it's mentioned again in the New Testament, it is a boundary that helps us stay away from sin. So why do we listen to all the laws about sexual immorality? It's because it's been repeated in the New Testament. It's clear and easy. Now, some people are going to try to twist the New Testament to try to justify the actions. For me, this is, this is how you know whether it's being twisted or not. Read it and let it speak to you. If you're trying to manipulate it to mean something else, then you're probably trying to justify something. <coughs> but when I look at my life and I look at it in the light of the New Testament, I'm seeing all these things. Yes, I need to work on that. Admit it. I still need grace. I'm faithless in this area of my life, but with God's help, I can move on. Yeah? So this is a bit of an intro to next week. Good intro? They're just going to get the band up right now. And I hope that this really helps you out because I think there are many Christians that are I think there are two types of people that I want to talk to this morning. One type of person is so scared of God because you think that God will look through all of your defenses, see how broken you are, and reject you. And the truth is, that's the life that I live. I've been a Christian, brought up in a Christian home all my life, but I don't know why I still carry this message that I need to get it right. That God gets disappointed with me when I get it wrong. So some of you might not have made that commitment to Jesus because the Jesus that you saw was a Jesus that will put you in a box. It's a Jesus who will cause you to live a small life. 
Well, I'm here to help you see, hopefully, that life with Jesus is so much bigger than you can ever imagine. I was thinking of getting another bigger box, calling it the life of grace. But then I was like, hang on, why not just say that this is a small life of sin and everything else is grace? This monkey could be all the way back there and it's still in grace. Grace is unlimited. Grace is so wide. It's so huge. And grace is the thing that God's given to you, whether you think you deserve it or not. In fact, you should never think you deserve it. dreams in your life and you think that you can't reach them because God's disappointed in you and that's a lie of the enemy because all grace is is it removes us from sin and say I give you all of this some of you this morning need a new picture of God your picture of God is that he's small and that he's petty he's hard on you these standards and all these laws that you need to keep up with but you're not keeping up you call yourself a Christian but you're depressed you got this anxiety this worry that is wrecking you this morning I hope that this is a message of freedom for you it's not about laws or standards that we're looking for yes establish those boundaries yes look away from the life of sin that's going to keep you bound up we have died to it we have been removed to it don't go back to it but we understand there's a journey and if god's going to allow you to be on a journey we want to be on your journey as well i need people on my journey to check up on me and say how are you going That's one kind of Christian that I want to talk to. Another kind of Christian is one that has gone to the extreme where you think that grace has completely gotten rid of this. Well, that's not the case. That sin is still there. The ability to sin is still there. God's allowed you to choose. But maybe you need to make some, some adjustments today. And every day, make those little adjustments. Maybe you have been staring at that life of sin and you're realizing this morning that you're right up against it. And maybe tomorrow is just a little shift. Not complete, maybe a little bit. Maybe a day after, and a day after. And over time, you start to see that, ah, oh, that's what God wants me to be looking at wonder why you talk about grace all the time but you feel so bound up well hopefully this helps you to see what's going on and again we as a church we want to be on your journey with you because we know that this adjustment takes time you're not going to somehow say Jesus come into my life and the whole New Testament is downloaded into your life that's not how it works you got to work your way through it you got to start reading it you got to start meditating on it you got to start loving the Word of God in your life you got to start loving a, a prayer life you got to start loving uh, loving uh, service to other people you got to start doing the things that God says is healthy and will build you up and it will take time you're not going to be perfect tomorrow God doesn't zap you and change you into a different person. He loves you for who you are. And that's why he's willing to work with where you're at. But he knows that he's got so much more for you that he's not going to leave you there. He's going to take you on this process and on this journey. But understand that it is a journey. It will take time. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.